I love that song. No better message than for us to be constantly reminded it is not I, it is not my strength, it is through Christ in me. In fact, when we think about what God demands of us, interestingly and quite ironic to most every other thing that we deal with in life is he demands our weakness. He doesn't ask us to come strong. He asks us to come weak so that his power might be made perfect in and through us. And what a, what a message that is, as I've, you've heard me quote, which is why Bonhoeffer would say, the gospel bids us come and die so that the life of Christ can be exalted through us. How contrary to most everything we hear in our world and in our country, in our lives, we, we are... We are compelled to put ourselves at the center, compelled to show ourselves as the strong one, compelled to show ourselves as the symbol of life. And God says, no, you will come in weakness. You will come in death, and my strength and life will shine through you. It gives me chill bumps. What a message that we have. What a message that we have. As you know, if you are with us for any amount of time, we've been going through the book of Daniel today. We're, we're taking a break from Daniel to look at the supper and to focus on a psalm uh, this week that I almost looked over because it's only three verses. And I'll, and I'll confess a little bit of, of maybe arrogance on my part of thinking, it's only three verses. What does it really have to say until I begin to read it and look through it? And it has a lot to say, a lot more than I can even say this morning. It's Psalm 131. We're looking, it's part of the Psalms of Ascent that I have been kind of coming back to during Communion Sundays, but I was compelled to look at this psalm because of what David pins in here, the way that David writes these three brief verses and how it compels us to say, hey, if I were to hold my life up into the mirror of this psalm, what reflection do I see? Do I see what David is talking about or, or am I something different perhaps? Am I somebody who does think of myself more highly than I ought? Do I keep my eyes lifted up? Do I occupy myself with things that are too great? Do I occupy myself with things that are too marvelous for me? In other words, do I put myself in a position of power because of my own view of myself? Now, please don't hear me say I think you should consider yourself a worm. That's not what I'm saying. I don't think you should think, oh, you should go around telling people, I'm just the worst. That is not healthy either. If you're in Christ this morning, you're a new creation. <laughs> you're the image of God. You're not a worm and you're not the worst. You are something beautiful in God's economy. But we do need to keep a perspective about who we are, where we live in God's kingdom, how we live in God's kingdom, how do we carry ourselves, and who taught us these things? Who, who solidified Psalms like Psalm 131 to us? Well, Jesus did, and the way that he lived in the way that he calls us to live in light of him. In other words, the way that he calls us to live in his imitation. And so when we think about Psalm 31, there's a few different things we're going to look at this morning. But it does compel us to look at Christ, the prime example of Psalm 131, and to draw us in to say, how can I use my independence? We asked this question earlier. How can I use my independence to live more and more for Christ? to live more and more in the imitation of Christ. And so this morning we get to consider that very briefly. We're looking at Psalm 131. It's very brief, but let's read it together. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. A song, a song of a sense of David. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. 
I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So ends the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Let's pray for just one moment. Father, thank You for Your Word. Be with us now as we look at it, as we dissect it, as we imbibe it. May we apply it and may it produce beautiful fruit in our lives. May it compel us to live for You more and more. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Perhaps you're familiar with Chariots of Fire and Eric Little and his story, The Runner. Well, if you don't know, in 1924, he ran in the Olympics and won a gold medal, and he had a, had a career of sports ahead of him. He could have gone and been a great star. Well, he didn't. He chose instead to follow God's calling and to be a missionary and died very unceremoniously in China in a concentration camp with other prisoners of war for the glory of God. What compels me about his story is in one part of his life, he said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure, like God had created him to run. But what happened with him? God instilled in him a deeper calling, a deeper pleasure, a deeper humility to say, I can set my own stardom and my own, my own ability to run aside for the glory of God. In other words, in a moment, he chose a humble path to follow God and it defines his life to me more than his running ability because there was a humility there with him and a satisfaction, we'll call it a contentment in the will of God to do something harder, much less glorious, and that cost him his life. But now he sits in eternity with our Father and the Lord Jesus waiting for the consummation of all things, more glorified now than he ever could have been as a runner. It is a powerful story if you've not read much of him, I would encourage you to look it up. When we look at this, we think of this very brief psalm, and sometimes either psalms can, or, or passages in the Bible can be either too, so familiar or so short, we think that perhaps they might not have as much to offer, but David is doing something here. One uh, commentator I read, I actually like the way he, he described it. He called this a maintenance psalm. psalm. He said, this is one of those brief psalms where you come to for maintenance, where you look at it and you have to start asking yourself diagnostic questions. Well, I mean, do I lift up my heart? Are my eyes raised too high? Do I occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me? Because what it's doing is it's encouraging us that if those things are true, well, we need some maintenance done. We need some pruning done. We need to look inward and be introspective for a moment. As I said, put this up to the mirror of the gospel and ask ourselves, am I doing these things? Am I guilty? Am I guilty of not being calm and quieting my soul in Christ? Am I guilty of not being satisfied? Am I guilty of not being content with where God might have me in this moment? And so this psalm becomes a beautiful way for us to think through our own lives. How is the life of Christ working in and through us? How are we walking and living in the imitation of Christ with one another and in our world? Are we truly and genuinely different from the world? Are we taking a mindset and a posture that says, yes, I am not a part of culture. I am a part of the culture of Christ. Those are the things that, that this psalm, it compels us to ask ourselves. Am I living in arrogance or am I living in humility? Am I constantly putting myself forward or am I, or am I stepping back so that I can serve? 
Am I standing up straight or am I kneeling before the throne so that God could use my life? Those are questions that everybody has to ask. We all do. Because we all get into spaces in our lives where that, that D word works its way into our thinking. What I mean is deserve. I deserve this. I deserve that. I deserve better. Beloved, I don't begrudge anybody being blessed. If you're blessed this morning, may God increase it tenfold. But I do know we run into a problem when that word deserve works its way into our heart and entitlement settles in. And when entitlement settles in, we do start trying to do things that are beyond us. And so this psalm, as the commentator said, is a wonderful psalm to give us a little bit of maintenance. And so as we're looking at it, there are two words that are here that I think kind of define this, what the psalm are. The words are humility and contentment. It's about being humble and content, this psalm is. And we're going to get into this. I don't, I don't have any problem with people having aspirations. I don't have any problem with that. But we can aspire to greater things and still be content in the Lord. We can aspire to do more and still be content in the Lord. So those are just some brief thoughts here. So when we think about humility and contentment, what is the enemy? Well, we've already said, what is the enemy of humility and contentment? It is pride. It's pride. It's the thing that says, I deserve this. It's owed to me. Where do we see this most played out in the New Testament? Well, in a bunch of different places, but one poignant story is in the parable of the prodigal son. You remember the older brother's attitude? All these years I've slaved for you, and you never even gave me a young goat to, uh, to celebrate with my friends. You can hear the entitlement in his voice. I deserved better than what you gave me. Now remember, his father had given him a good income, a roof over his head, a vocation, food to eat, clothes to wear, and a place, a safe place where he could live and grow. And he is still talking about something else that he deserves that he hasn't gotten. Beloved of God, that is a sickness in the soul of a human being, especially a Christian, when we get to this place of thinking, I deserve, because what happens is the longer I talk about what I deserve, the less I am satisfied. And then we will begin singing with the Rolling Stones that we can't get no satisfaction, which is actually a blues song before it was a Rolling Stones song. Because we find ourselves in a place where nothing is ever enough. And that is not how God has called us to live. Of course, again, I want to say it's not wrong to have aspirations. But at some point, we do have to come to a place where we are content with where we are, what we're doing, what God has given us. We're focusing on what we have instead of what we don't have. David, he puts this in the realm first of where it needs to start. It says, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. So as he's talking about this, my heart is not lifted up. He is beginning where it needs to start in the heart. David has given the expression here to what an ideal Christian should be. This is ideally how we should live. Our heart should not be lifted up. Our eyes should not be raised too high. We shouldn't occupy ourselves with things too great and marvelous for us. He's given us the ideal Christian life. In other words, what is he saying? If we put this in modern American terms, what is he saying? Know your place. Know your station. Know who you are. Know where you are. Know what you're supposed to be doing. Know what is beyond your pay grade. And be satisfied with that. That is what the Scriptures are calling us to be because the heart of dissatisfaction, I'm telling you, if we foster dissatisfaction in our hearts, you know what happens? It's a whole chain reaction. Bitterness, resentment, and cynicism. They just stay there. 
and they grow and they flower into poisonous fruit that suck the very joy and life right out of us. So in other words, what David is telling us here, what he's telling you, what he's telling me, literally, he says, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. He's guarded his heart. He's guarding his heart. He's keeping his heart guarded. He's not giving in to the cultural notions of self-importance. Why is it doubly important coming from David? Because he's the king of Israel. This is the king of Israel writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying, yes, even as king, there are things too marvelous for me. There are things too great for me. I have to guard my heart so as not to give in to my own notions of self-importance. And David did, give, did from time to time give in to notions of his own self-importance. Uh, That's why the whole debacle with Bathsheba happened in the first place. I mean, there's a whole litany of sins there. But one is viewing himself more highly than he should have. I can take what I want. I'm the king. Well, ideally, though, David would say, no, we have to guard our hearts. And this gets down to, I think, I'm not thinking this is, this is a stretch, This gets down to an identity issue that we have. I am God's man. I am God's woman. I am on God's... My purpose is not to do my will, but to do God's will. That we are to follow the example of Christ. And so that our identity is not anything other than God's man, God's woman doing God's will. Everything else is temporal. Everything else is temporal. But our connection to God is eternal, and understanding what my identity is and what my role is in this world is to love God, to follow God, to love my neighbor, and proclaim God's goodness to my neighbor and everyone else. Once we grab hold of that, it really does simplify life. Now, what's the problem? What's the major obstacle in this? Sin. Our own sinful notions of ourself and our own coming back round to lifting our eyes too high, unguarded hearts, looking at things and not knowing our station, And so, when we look at this, what is our identity? What is our purpose? Our identity, our purpose, is to do what God says, not what I say. To live by God's word, not by what society says. To extol God's word, not the latest fashion of thinkers from our secular world. I fear for Christians sometimes we want so much to have a voice in the world that we just make too many compromises and concessions. And when we hear people clearly talking about things that are unscriptural as a means to loving their neighbor so they can have a conversation, it makes my blood boil. Why would you concede truth to falsehood when you're trying to combat falsehood? Why would you give credence to things that go against Scripture in the name of love. It's not loving, and that's not our purpose. Our purpose is to come in love with truth, in love with truth, and meet falsehood again and again and again, and so we don't compromise identity conversations. We don't compromise biblical ethic conversations because those things are true. We come with those in love, and we proclaim, and we let the Holy Spirit sort it out. Beloved, any time you come to a conversation, remember, your number one goal is not to convince somebody that you're right. Your number one goal is to sow the seed of truth, and you let the Holy Spirit come in behind you and do the work. When we are relieved of the obligation to see a decision or to see somebody change their mind, it is freeing because not everybody's going to agree with you, and that's okay. It's not our job to make them agree with us. It's our job to say, here is truth. The Lord will do his work. So David talks about guarding his heart. 
He also talks about guarding his eyes. That's what he says. My eyes are not raised too high. He's guarding his heart. He's guarding his eyes. He keeps his eyes Godward. For us in the Christian context, this side of the cross, what do we do? Well, we keep our eyes on Christ, which is displayed in the table before us. We keep our eyes on Jesus. We keep our eyes grounded in Scripture. We keep our eyes on God's ethic. That we, we ground ourselves in the truth of Scripture and not in the philosophies of this world. The philosophies of this world are legion. And some of them sound good. Some of them have hints of truth in them. And in that way, we can acknowledge that God's truth or all truth is God's truth. But beloved of God, the latest philosophy fashions, they will come and they will go. The word of the Lord stands forever. And so we link arms in the word of God. We link our souls and hearts to the word of God. We keep our eyes looking through the lens of the word of God. And so that when we come to conversations and debates or times of encouragement, we're not speaking just our words. We're not speaking what might sound nice in a moment. We are speaking the word of God. He says that we should guard our hearts, that we should guard our eyes. He also says we should guard our lives by saying, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. What is he saying? Know your limitations, and you have them, I have them. Know your weaknesses, you have them, I have them. We all have limitations, we all have weaknesses. And when we understand this, and when we, we live in that reality, it gives us an opportunity to rejoice and celebrate the strength of Christ the strength of Christ in us. It should not be lost on us. The Apostle Paul, when he speaks of crying out to God, saying, take this thorn in my flesh away from me three times. In other words, I don't know we need to think of literally, but he just cried out over and over to God, take this away from me. And what does God tell his beloved Apostle? No. My grace is sufficient for you to endure the pain. And so we need to understand, if he had limitations and weaknesses and he needed the grace of God to help him endure, so do we. We will need it too. We will will need it. We will need to drink from that well again and again and again. And praise God we have it in Christ this morning. Displayed on this table, I know we see a juice and 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 a piece of bread. That is the image that Jesus gave us to remind us we have his strength because his body and his blood have been given for us. What a celebration. What a reason this morning to come and rejoice. Beloved of God, what can I say? That the holy, the happy heart is a humble heart. It knows its needs. It sees, it, it sees the truth of God and it comes to that well. The happy, the happy heart is not the haughty heart because the haughty heart says, I can never be satisfied. I need more and more and more. The humble heart says, even what I've been given, I don't deserve. Thank you for your mercy. And is content with that. May God give us all a humble heart. May God give us all a humble heart. That when those times of haughtiness and arrogance come to plague us, that we be reminded of the rich beauty and gift of Jesus Christ. I love how he says in verse 2, he goes on, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. What is he getting at here? (laughs) Well, as he's just laid out, A, if I've chosen humility in in a moment, I've chosen humility to see myself as I am, to see God as he is. Now, what does that lead to? A real sense of contentment. 
a real sense of contentment. That's what he's talking about, that quieted, that, that calmed soul. It's the, the satisfied soul, and it remains calm and quiet. I, I, I love how he, he talks about a, a weaned child. He compares it to a weaned child. What is a weaned child? Well, in this context, the weaned child would be the child that's no longer hungry, who's, who's eaten and had a satisfaction. He's not fussy and crying out and rah, rah, needing more. He's been sated. He's full. He's happy because he's satisfied. See, that's the beauty. When the Bible is telling us to seek contentment, it's not trying to put strict parameters around in us. It's trying to say, do you really want to experience a sense of satisfaction? Be content with what God has given you, where you are. How is this done? How do we calm and quiet our souls through the power of the Holy Spirit? Because he brings assurances to us. The Holy Spirit is the one who's constantly walking with us and speaking to us, not this way, this way. And when we look at the table here set before us, we think of the cross. The Holy Spirit says, you can be satisfied. How? 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 How can we be satisfied? He points us back to the cross because God has been satisfied. His wrath has been satisfied. His grace and life and salvation have been given to you. You are a blood-bought child of God. Whatever you may be lacking in this world, you have infinitely more in eternity. And so we can experience lack. We can experience heartache. We can experience death because we have an abundant life in Jesus Christ. And we can be satisfied with that. When we, when we think about the quiet soul, the calm soul, it's a soul that trusts God's goodness. It's a soul that trusts God's faithfulness. It's a soul that says, I will wait on the Lord. And remember, as I've said before, waiting on the Lord and doing nothing are not the same thing. We don't think of waiting on the Lord and doing nothing. We wait on the Lord and we continue to walk in His will. Brad, what is His will? It is right in front of you. If you have a Bible open in your lap this morning, His will is right there. We don't have to try to try to ferret it out from signs and wonders, it's here, it's right here. His will is right in front of you. The will of the Lord is revealed. You have it in writing, in English, probably in a beautifully bound Bible. The will is right there for what God calls us to do. So how do we wait on the Lord? We listen to His Word. We walk in the pathways that He sets before us, and we wait for His sovereign voice to guide us through Scripture. As I said to you a moment ago, he uses wean child as a picture of contentment. As they're satisfied, this child is nourished. nourished. And what does a wean child trust in? That they will be nourished again. That when their hunger strikes, this person's going to feed me again because this person keeps feeding me again and again and again. The child of God can trust in God, can have a calm soul, because God has promised to feed us again and again and again and again. Now, sometimes he serves us a dish that we don't like very much. And it's hard to navigate those waters at times. But just like if you've been a parent of a child, can you remember watching your child make those grotesque faces when you would feed them something? And you're like, I know you don't like it, but it's good for you, and you're going to eat it anyway. The whole jar... And some of those things are absolutely nasty. Um, brief side note, I got hazed one time when we, Rachel was pregnant with Jacob. We went to a, a party, and they blindfolded me and fed me all kinds of baby food. And to this day, the baby food butternut squash gives me nightmares. 
<clears throat> another story for another day. I, I, was, I was traumatized that night. But the weaned child, the weaned child is a picture of contentment because they're satisfied and they know that they're going to be nourished again. When we look at this, I would never want you to think it's wrong to have aspirations. Wanting ambition is a different story, but aspirations, aspiring to be better at your job, aspiring to do more for yourself, aspiring to put yourself in, in a better spot, there's nothing wrong with those things. Those are God-honoring things, if indeed your life is, you're doing it in a God-honoring way. So when we aspire to better things or bigger things or whatever, it's not the enemy of contentment, but wanting ambition is. When you're willing to step on people to get your way, you're not content. If you're saying, hey, I'm happy where I'm at, but I'm praying for something else, and if God gives it graded, if not, I have what I need. That's all right. It's okay to do that. We should have holy aspirations. We should aspire to be, and you know, if you're saying, hey, I would like to make a little bit more so I can be a little bit more generous, that's a great aspiration to have. God bless you in that endeavor. I hope that happens for you. But it's when we decide that my ambition is the driving force in my life that we lose sight of contentment. This final verse here, he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. What is the hope of God's people? Yahweh, the eternality of Yahweh. Yahweh is eternally the hope of his people. So when we think about the answers to life stresses and problems, uh, it's not trite, and you shouldn't kind of be like, well, yeah, of course we know that, to say the answer to life stresses and problems really is the hope of the Lord. What meets us in the valley of the shadow of death when we are grieving? The hope of God. The hope of God. He mentions hope here, and in Psalm 130, the psalmist there says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. He tells us what the content, why can we hope in the Lord? Because with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Why? Because he's got steadfast love and his salvation and redemption are plentiful. So we hope in the Lord because he is able to meet our hopes. We don't hope hoping, thinking he might not do it. We hope with the full assurance that God is able See, what is the enemy of hope? Arrogance is. Arrogance is the enemy of hope. Because arrogance says I'm self-sufficient. I can hope in myself and I'll be just fine. That's not hope, beloved. Our only hope is in the Lord. What gives us hope in grieving death? The Lord does. We grieve with a hope that death is a transition into an eternal life with God if we're in Christ. What gives us hope and sickness? That either if we're in Christ, we're going to pass from this world into full healing, or that God is going to heal us here and now, and we're going to be restored. What gives us hope in tragedy? That is the gospel that puts the fragmented pieces of life back together in a way that makes it more beautiful. What gives us hope when we see people who are struggling? that God makes everything beautiful in its time, as the author of Ecclesiastes says. What gives us hope when we have lost something that we truly loved, that we are loved more infinitely than we can possibly understand, and it was demonstrated at the cross? What gives us hope when we've lost family members or feel orphaned or feel abandoned, that we have a friend in heaven and Jesus who sticks closer than a brother, 
and a Father in, in heaven in Yahweh who says, I will never let you go. Beloved, we have hope. Don't despise it. Don't roll your eyes at it as sometimes I am wont to do, thinking, well, of course I know I have hope, but I just need an answer now. Our answer is the hope of Christ. It's only the contented heart that can truly trust and serve. It really is. A discontent heart is not going to bow. A discontent heart is going to look to be served. A discontent heart is going to say, this is beneath me. But a heart that is content, a heart that is humble, a heart that is grounded in Christ says, here I am, Lord, send me. We see this most displayed in the life of Jesus. We see this most displayed in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, his ascension, and now his ministry of intercessory prayer for us as he awaits the day of, cons of consummation. How do we imitate Christ? Well, surely we can read the Gospels and see that. But at the very least, we can imitate Christ in hoping in the Lord, living humbly before our brothers and sisters, and remaining satisfied in what God is, who he is, and what he has done, is doing, and will do in our lives. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this truth this morning. Thank you for its power, its glory, its beauty. Be with us, I pray, this morning. May these things be added tenfold in our minds and hearts that we appreciate. Psalm 131, this little maintenance psalm that compels us to prune our hearts, to trim back things that are sucking the life out of us so that your fruit can blossom. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.